Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our usual Thursday time slot this week at 10 a.m. on March 15th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Paige Winfield Cunningham of The Washington Post. Happy almost St. Patrick's Day. And Alice Alstein of Talking Points Memo. Good morning. And happy Ides of March, all of you. Um, We have a little bit of breaking news that I think we'll talk in more detail about next week. But Scott Gottlieb, the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, who was just on this podcast a few weeks ago, is announcing today that he is putting out a rule that would require uh, cigarettes, basically inhalable tobacco products, to have minimal or non-addictive levels of nicotine which is a very big deal. I know it's allowed by the law that Congress passed some years ago, but uh, as far as I know, this is the first time anybody's actually said, any FDA and, uh, commissioner said that they were actually going to do this. It's a pretty gutsy thing. As, as Julie said, it just happened, and I think we'll come back and talk about it more when we know exactly what it's about next week. But it's it's uh, it wasn't what we were expecting to see in our email this morning. Yes, and also, but many things about Scott Gottlieb of late have been things we did not expect to see in our email this morning, but that's a topic for another day. I was just going to say he's he's definitely been busy over at the FDA, taking taking advantage of the fact that his uh, his agency regulates a quarter of the consumer products in the United States. Um, so in maybe the, he'll say that yeah. guns are a food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt he'll go that far. In the meantime, we are now a week away from the next deadline for a funding bill to keep the government open, and negotiations have been not fast but definitely furious on adding to that bill a package of proposals to stabilize the individual insurance market in the wake of changes wrought by Congress and the Trump administration over the past six months. So where are we? How are things going? Alice, oh, you're up on the Hill. Sure. Um, well, we uh, haven't seen the omnibus yet, and it's that sounds like negotiations are still ongoing, especially around uh, riders. That one side or the other feels they're poison pills that are designed to tank passage. These are these are policy policy statements rather than funding levels. Right. And so one of the many, many, many items that they're haggling over at the moment is this package of bills to stabilize Obamacare's individual market, looking at the same policies that they've been fighting over since last summer, uh, restoring the cost-sharing reduction payments to insurers for a couple years at least, and passing some sort of federal reinsurance program. Now, in addition to that, there's a lot of senators saying, look, we can't just do what we designed last summer because so much has happened since then. We're in a whole new era right now, and we have to respond to all of the Trump administration policies that are further eroding the individual market. And so uh, I sat down with Senator Tammy Baldwin this week to talk about her bill, which would roll back and even go even further regarding uh, the Trump administration's short-term health insurance policies. She sees those as a real threat to the individual market uh, that will, you know, bleed away all of the healthy healthy people. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And so she says, look, if we do all this other stabilization stuff, but we don't address the short-term plans, what are we even doing? Now, it's pretty uncertain and not looking great for that to be included in the omnibus, but... 
it's something to track. I feel like things are looking like worse and and worse, (laughs) really, because I mean, even like when there was the bipartisan agreement between Alexander and Murray, they still didn't necessarily. Right. Mm -hmm. They still didn't necessarily have the House conservatives. And now where we stand here is the House House conservatives are still adopting the bailout language. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think Mark Meadows and some others had an op-ed in Fox News this morning calling it a bailout. And then we had a letter earlier this week from like Freedom Works and all of those other groups calling it a bailout. And then, meaning that we're bailing out that the, this is the federal government bailing out the insurance companies, which is kind of ironic because like this is actually the government giving money back to industry, which typically conservatives are in favor of, but whatever. Um, and then you have all of these disputes now, of course, that Alice talked about between Murray and Senator Alexander. And I honestly think from Murray's perspective, I mean, she doesn't have a lot to lose here. I think polls are showing that people are increasingly holding Republicans responsible for what happens with health care. And for Murray, this is an opportunity to talk about how they repealed the individual mandate, how they're changing the law um, at the executive level. And so she's, she's basically refusing to go along with the agreement now unless they prop up the premiums more, unless they fund the CSRs more. Um, and then, of course, there's this whole other side conflict about the Hyde Amendment That language. was my next question. Mm-hmm. So, so, right. so once again, abortion enters this. Right. So basically, um, you know, the anti-abortion groups are insisting that this Hyde language, which, which basically says that federal funding cannot be used for abortions except in cases of rape, incest for life of the mother, um, has to be attached to this Otherwise, the CSRs could go potentially to plans that would cover abortions. And this was this is sort of like a resurrection of the same fight, of course, that we saw back in 2010. I actually the fight that it, almost got the bill not right. passed in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. So and I don't really see like Republicans caving to, the, you know, not going along with their base on that. Um, but Murray has said that including the high language would be a non-starter for her. She actually told me that last week when I caught up with her. So. I don't know if any of you have some like particular insight into a magical path forward, well, but it's hard to see. The, it's a mess at the moment. The only thing, I mean, they are talking about much, they're talking about more specificity and money and CBO preliminary estimates. I mean, there's been some movement in, in between Alexander and Murray. Um, I agree with the dynamics you both discussed, but remember, it's not just the labor age bill. If this was just about the, if they were doing a normal appropriations bill where it was labor age, this would be stuck for you know forever. Because, labor age stands for labor, right, labor and health. health and human services right. and education, which is all in one spending, bill aka together. the culture war spending bill. But the because it is at this point they're hoping to do an omnibus where they roll everything in, where at the end of the day nobody gets every. I mean, clearly nobody, everyone gets a lot of stuff they don't want. Mm-hmm. Can there be some kind of some form of stabilization. Um, I, I agree that it doesn't look fantastic. I don't rule it out because because it's an omnibus, everybody has to give up a lot, except apparently the tunnel from New York. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's apparently the one thing they can't do. So, um, you know, I don't... Things can, things can move fast before that spring break deadline. Um, do I, So I do... I actually do see, compared to how bad it looked as, like, Impossible last week to mostly impossible this week. That's sort of progress. So I don't I don't rule out <laughs> well, something. And, and to your point, Joy, and I think the Republicans that really want this to happen, i.e. Alexander and the yeah. you know dozen of Senate. senators that have signed on, I think they're extra motivated because now we, we had the Oliver Wyman study that came out at the beginning of the week that said if you fund the CSRs and the reinsurance together, that that would bring down premiums 40%. And so they're really trying to point to that study as 
as as you know part of their reasoning for why this needs and to happen. Because the Republicans and, can go home and say we've we we've given premiums. you a lot of alternatives to Obamacare. We've given you mm-hmm. the age, these you know small business plans. We've given these short term plans, and we've, we've lowered the mandate. Your, we've right. taken sure. away the mandate, and we've just lowered your premiums. So you know they I, need I, something to say right. this year on the campaign trail. Because they can't talk about repeal anymore. No, but they can talk about tax cuts. And as skeptical as I am about them getting anything done, I I see sort of two factors why it could happen. One is that the hardcore conservatives who are against this and calling it a bailout and all of that are the same people who might vote against the omnibus anyways, and they're not counting on their votes because they just are against all that spending anyway. It's important to remember they need Democrats to pass this in the House. Sure, And so they're they're not counting on those votes anyways. And then the other factor is that premiums would be set without this policy and maybe even with it. We'll see. Um, the premiums would be going up right before the midterm elections. Republicans would be blamed, et cetera. So that could be some incentive for them to come together on something. But again, I'm pretty skeptical. And so I think also none of us really think that this completely stabilizes Obamacare. <laughs> no, but, but I do think that all of us around the table would think that there's some stabilizing yes, it, factor or a degree of stabilization. Is this, you yeah, know, if you're the health policy wonk trying to figure out how to make Obamacare work perfectly, this is not the solution. And, and even, but it's, it is a step. Even the CBO said this morning that, that this would um, lower premiums. Not as much know. as the Oliver Wyman study said. but Because one of them CBO. is nonpartisan neutral and one of them is hired by somebody. <laughs> I think it was hired by the insurance industry, if I remember correctly. There's, uh, no, uh, my, uh, my oh, I question... Thought, go ahead. Sorry, I just want to point out one other thing about this. Families USA, weirdly enough is against the 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 funding the CSRs right cuz they they've been talking about that whole phenomenon of of so the silver loading. That's right. That, yeah. I and mean, th- that's this is the weirdness me. of this. Right. Well, it's not that odd. I actually wrote a story about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Families USA, obviously, the liberal lobbying group is against this, but that's because one of the quirks of the way that the state regulators have dealt with the elimination of the CSRs is to let them put it on the silver premiums that get the subsidies. And so what you've ended up with is this huge, as we talked about a m- number of times, this huge sale where people can get bronze plans for free or they can get gold plans for, you know, just a few dollars a month. Month. So if you put the CSRs back to the way they were supposed to be in the law, you would take away all these huge discounts. Um, so there's so that's for one of the courts for, for some for people. The that's right. People. I mean, they were way more creative than we thought about this silver loading thing that Julie just described. So maybe they'll. I mean, if the if if in fact the CSRs get reinstated, I think that some of them will figure out how to do some of this. You know, make it. I don't know how they're going to do it, but I didn't expect them to end up with zero premium. You know, where everyone yeah, is talking yeah. about catastrophe, no CSRs, it's going to explode. And instead, some people got free health insurance. So maybe there's, <laughs> you know, some somebody out in you know the California exchange probably figuring this out. We can talk about it when we. There was, there was a whole lot of talk about it before it happened with that I sort of didn't feel like I needed to commit brain cells to. And then it all happened. And I felt like, oh, I better figure out. It was out really smart. Works. I mean, it was really smart. And I mean, none of, I don't think it, I think we were all hearing, you know, this catastrophic. Yeah. Cassandra predictions and someone came up with a solution. Yeah. So, um, although you know, that we should say that the people who don't get subsidies are still it's terrible although they're for not, them. They are, yeah. in fact, because of this, many of them are not getting hammered as much as they would have. Right. So you know, this whole but this the, the, the other aspects of the stabilization bill would potentially help some of the people who don't have a subsidy or who don't have much of a subsidy because so the, sta- we, the, the stabilization, the um, the other part of it, the, the reinsurance. reinsurance. Unless Bef- Democrats magically get their provisions to 
to right. give I mean, more people subsidies, but that's extremely that's unlikely. unlikely. That's not going to happen. But, Ranging but, on impossible. Before we move on, I want to ask one question, which is that the exit polls out of Pennsylvania 18, that was a special election that we saw this week that has apparently been won by the Democrat by, you know, basically a couple of hundred votes in a district that went 20 percentage points for President Trump. The exit polls... Um, to seem said that health was a very important issue, and for those that it was, it was the most important issue. They voted Democratic. Basically, what we saw in Virginia, the Virginia governor's race. But this is obviously a House race. We're now four months later, that many months closer to the uh, to the midterms. How much of that is going to freak out Republicans enough that they might stop calling this a bailout and start worrying about? premiums. Well, I say as someone who wrote about this this morning, I would add in a few grains of salt, which is which is that, first of all, the poll was conducted by public policy polling. And actually, which I probably should have pointed out in my story, the questions are actually pretty slanted in how they asked about the Democrat versus the Republican. And the other thing that I should note is that, you know, healthcare really wasn't a top issue that was discussed in the race. It was really a lot of other stuff. Um, It was a lot of other stuff. Yeah. It really didn't factor. It was like a sentence on each website. It really wasn't a major theme in the campaign. But I think what you could take away from it at the very least is that um, is that if if healthcare when healthcare is the topic Republicans are going to really have a hard time this year talking about it and what do they talk about because they can't point to their healthcare bills last year because those were deeply unpopular and so basically they're left with well we repealed the individual mandate and then the Trump administration is trying to do some other stuff kind of so right but uh, but <laughs> your people's views about the healthcare law are baked into their political affiliation so de- and it, I think it has more to do with um mo- you know energizing a base at this point um so I don't think that a republican is who you know, who decided they like Obamacare after all was going to go vote for the Democrat. I mean, I think it was it's more sort of a solidifying factor in that race. And angry people turn out more. Right. And the other thing I haven't looked at yet, and I don't know if the data is out, I just I didn't even look for it, is I'm sort of curious if the youth vote, you know, the millennial vote came out or not, because we're certainly in an era where this is seems to be sparking. And it was a big factor in the Virginia race, uh, the Virginia governor's yeah, race. It was, it was it was really big for an off-year election. And and I think that's something that we'll all be watching. And I think they are a little bit more um, tending to be healthcare voters. But again, I don't have the data on that. So we'll, we should look at, I'll try to find that and bring it back in the future. All right. Well, well speaking of other things that the administration is doing, um, I wanted to talk about uh, Title X a little bit, the federal family planning program. Congress and the Trump administration discovered to their dismay last year that lacking 60 votes in the Senate, they apparently can't evict Planned Parenthood from the program. And Planned Parenthood, by the way, currently serves about a million and a half of the four million people who use Title X. So instead, the administration seems to be trying to manipulate the program to get Planned Parenthood out. Late last month, the Department of Health and Human Services put out a funding notice that aims to shift the program's emphasis away from contraception and open it to what officials there call more holistic providers, which can translate, among other things, to providers that don't provide all or even most forms of FDA-approved contraceptions. And last week, in a scoop by one of Joanne's political reporters, Jen Habercorn, it appears that all funding decisions for Title X will be made by the woman who heads the program, Valerie Huber, rather than a group of people, as it had been in the past. Uh, Huber is a longtime proponent of abstinence rather than contraception to prevent pregnancy. So how big a threat is it to Title X as we know it, given that Congress can't seem to pass anything on this issue 
given the abortion divisions. I was actually more struck by what HHS didn't do than what it did do. Because I, So I did a story back in November about how with this funding notice, they potentially could have done a whole range of things. In fact, they could have even tried to carve out organizations that provide abortion, such as Planned Parenthood, from getting any Title X funds. Um, and, and they didn't do that, actually. And that was something that a lot of the abortion rights groups had kind of raised flags about. Um, that's not to say there weren't any changes. There were some wording changes in how they emphasized. Um, they talked a lot less about contraception in, in, in the notice. But I, I don't think we're actually going to know until the actual awards come out. In Which terms will of, be this summer, right? Right. Yeah. I think it's June or July uh, in terms of whether there are going to be any real shifts in kind of who can get Title X grants. Um, so I actually, I was just sort of wondering if um, this kind of speaks to the hesitancy we've seen so far of Alex Azar to do something that could be potentially illegal. I mean, we saw that, and I know we'll talk about Idaho too, but, That's you know. Next. <laughs> right. So, yeah. He, he, you know, came down pretty clearly on like you, Idaho, you can't sell these non-ACA compliant plans. So, you know, I, like I, I, so I actually think HHS like could have gone out a lot further than it did. Um, and then also, you know, remember that Reagan, under Reagan, there were a lot more restrictions put on Title X. And in fact, the Supreme Court upheld those I, that was in the, 1991. My, that was, I was there. That was right. my, my first time. <laughs> what got me into covering reproductive health was covering the fight over the Reagan Title X Because I believe he had, what I think he had restricted Title X providers from providing abortion, they had, they for could abortions. Not, they could and, not be co-located. This was, this was right. a big deal. And actually, those, th- those, uh, regulations went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of them. I always wondered why uh, George W. Bush's HHS didn't put those back, because they ended up not, they were just about to go into effect when Clinton became president, and they basically just got shelved. And then Clinton shelved, right, yeah. Right, but they could, but they have been, they have been litigated, so in theory, they could bring them back, and you're right, they haven't. Yeah, so I was actually kind of surprised by what HHS, HHS didn't do. But they can still, I mean, because it, I read the description of the criteria, and I, and I read last year's, and there is a really quite a big difference in the language. I mean, this year's obviously mentions national uh, natural family planning or the rhythm method. It it talks about abstinence. It talks what you know risk avoidance and other, which words. is why I have enough. Right. And and <laughs> and the um, the um, last year's language was about. FDA approved forms of contraception, and it didn't mention abstinence and family plan, natural family planning, um, or if it mentioned it, it, I don't think it mentioned it at all, and it certainly didn't stress it. I don't, I don't even recall seeing those phrases. So, I mean, I think that they can use because it is Valor Huber, and it's not that they're squeezing out 100% of Planned Parenthood, but I think they can see, I think she does have the tools to shift where the money goes. Yeah. I think that's pretty I think, clear. I think the thing to watch for is not whether like Planned Parenthood gets shut out of Title X, but whether they award grants to any new groups that provide only abstinence or family planning services and, as not like contraception. Texas, right. right. That's right. what I would be watching for. Right. And the other thing is, I, I, don't, I don't know... Uh, it, I think that there's there are many Planned Parenthood clinics that actually don't do abortion that only do family planning and including and some health. of have gotten sued and um you know maybe you know we don't know what's in her head but I mean maybe that some of them will get I mean they don't like Planned Parenthood obviously and and it's fungible right I mean if you if you give them family planning money here at you know their argument is that you're indirectly funding abortion because you free up some other yeah we should we should point out that the fa- the Title Ten was passed in 1970 so that's pre Roe v Wade it was 
signed by President Nixon and its uh, House sponsor was George H.W. Bush, who was then in the House. But it has forbidden family planning money from being used for abortion from the beginning. Right. The, the, the argument had always been if Planned Parenthood gets the money, and what Joanne was just saying, they get money for Title X and they also do abortion, that they can move move over right. money. It's, it's, it's so. you know, if you give me money for, if you pay for my lunch, you I have more money to buy my dinner. I mean, that's the argument from the anti-abortion forces, that you can't really separate this money out, that it's a, sort of, you know, a legal fiction or a bookkeeping fiction, that the money is still going to an organization that provides abortion. So, but, you know, as Paige's Paige right, I mean, they didn't go as far as they could have. They did go far. And well, we won't really know what it looks like until the grants come out. Now, you know, Paige mentions Azar. You know, not only is he the HHS secretary who's, who is a lawyer, but remember, he was actually the general counsel of HHS eight or nine years ago. And I think that we're, we're going to see is, you know, do you does, you know, he's only been there for a month. We don't know what he's going to do tomorrow. But is 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 he going to sort of look for legal fights or is he going to go, you know, achieve what he, you know, we're going to talk about Idaho in a minute, but that's sort of, I think, I think it was very telling, you know, what, what is he going to do pushing things as far as he can without spending five years in court? Well, we've, we've now previewed Idaho, which uh, as those who have listened know, because we've been talking about it for the past few weeks, the state of Idaho had uh, basically invited insurers to offer plans that were not compliant with the Affordable Care Act. And an insurer had stepped up and offered to do that. And we were waiting to see if HHS would step in and say, um, no, you can't do that. It's actually against the law. And the HHS did just that last week but only sort of. So what what do we know about what might now be able to happen in It was Idaho? such a funny letter. So they said, to our deep regret, the Affordable Care Act is still the law, and uh, despite our best efforts, essentially. And they said, well, you can't pursue the plan you wanted to pursue, which was just flouting the Affordable Care Act and allowing these plans that don't comply with the regulations, they did say, cough, cough, we advise you to go about your same goal a different way by using the short-term limited duration plans that have now been uh, allowed by the Trump administration to go up to just under a year. And there's now a bill in Congress to make them renewable. So they would essentially just be (laughs) off-market deregulated plans anyways. Um, So we'll see whether Idaho takes that route in the future. And Idaho is saying that that wink wink wasn't even a wink wink. They're saying it's not decided yet that they're still going to talk to CMS. Yeah, it, it looks yeah, it looks like they haven't given up. I mean, right. they, they seem to be saying, yeah, thanks for the letter, but we're going ahead. Yeah, they they're sort of saying that their approach uh, is on sort of a without getting too wonky about it, just sort of an actuarial risk basis. They're saying their approach is better than the the alternatives that the feds are offering and they're sort of implying they're going to go ahead. I'm not sure how that's going to play out. But again, this is a situation. My hunch, and we'll never know, my hunch is that Tom Price would have said, yeah, go ahead. And that Azar's HHS said, I don't want to spend five years in court. So, um, you know, I'm giving you another tool. Do it this way. Uh, You know, well, you know, unless I run into Tom Price in a train station and ask him, I don't think we'll ever know. But that's just sort of my gut feeling that he he would have and that some people in this administration would would like Idaho to go ahead. And and what we saw is a legal barrier. You know, this is the law. You might not like the law. I may not like the law, but here's the law, and I'm going to enforce it. Although I've I've talked to some some conservatives who I will not name at this point who said that that they agree with Nick Bagley at the University of Michigan. The law professor calls this crazy pants illegal, <laughs> and that maybe this isn't the best case right. for 
you know, for Crazy a lawsuit. Crazy pants illegal is a really good word. It's a, real, it's a really good description, and people seem waiting, to be lining up I'm behind it. I'm waiting for it to, to see it in a Supreme Court parade, right? Uh, I think that's what Nick was hoping for. <laughs> so maybe we can make new gu- new mugs for our podcast? Yes. yes. Like Crazy Pants Illegal mugs? Yes, right. absolutely. With, with holes in them? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to do my extra credit early this week because I want all of us to talk about it a little bit. It is from this week's Journal of the American Medical Association. It's written by researchers from Harvard and the London School of Economics, and it has the not very sexy headline of healthcare spending in the U.S. and other high-income countries. But it spells out what the late Uwe Reinhardt told us again and again. It's not that we in the U.S. consume that much more medical care than they do in other first world countries. It's that we pay so much more for the care we do consume. How is it that we know this? It's the price is stupid, as people like to say, and yet we don't seem to be able to do anything about it. We need a lot of mugs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we need an it's the price is stupid mug, too. But um, no, it's it. I mean, I, one of the things that I found most interesting, because the prices we know, all of us know that we it's we it's sort of you go crazy, to the doctor, pants expensive. Right. One of the things that I found really interesting in that was that you know, there's been sort of a lot of talk in the last year or so about how the U.S. doesn't spend as much as its European or other or, or developed Asian nations on social spending and that that was sort of the despair, some of the disparity. This study said that actually it's it's comparable, that we're not spending that much less. Um, so it knocked that sort of emerging argument aside. Um, and it just said, yeah, we pay too much. <laughs> and our health outcomes are worse than, That's right. than other countries for all of that spending. Which, the, one, yeah. the article details in in great, you know. <laughs> but it's also <laughs> they also they, yeah. they also did say, and this is this they say that our utilization isn't so much out of line, but they also said our administrative costs are very high, and there is a relationship between utilization and and administrative costs because that's. I mean, they go up when you use stuff. So, and they also pointed out that imaging in the U.S. is, which any of us who've ever very dealt, much yeah. used more than a, others. If you've had a, an elderly relative, you know how much you know, like a CAT scan a day. So, um, I think that was sort of there were it. You know, the top line is it's the price is stupid, but then sort of look at some other nuggets in there. It was a really interesting yeah, Pete Stark, the longtime chairman of the Ways and Means Health Subcommittee, who is from the, the, the Bay Area, used to like to say that there were there were more MRI machines in San Francisco than the entire kingdom of Canada. Right. But as 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 this as this um, JAMA piece and others have pointed out, Japan has even more and yet they don't you know charge as much for them. So it's I mean, uh, there's a, a professor at, at uh, I think she's Harvard School of Public Health, Nancy Kane, who told me years, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago before we were really talking about utilization. And imaging so much. She used to joke that, like, we have so much imaging in Florida that she used to think it glowed in the dark and you'd be able to see it from space. <laughs> well, I think, like, you know, we just have a different electorate in the U.S. than we do in, like, other developed countries. Like, we, we don't have the same support for, like, government health insurance. And so that means we have a private industry that sets prices. And then we have government, we have Medicare and Medicaid, you know, and, and Trump's not going to move forward on, on you know, Medicare price negotiations. And so, like, how do you know, like, how do you bring prices down? I mean, that's kind of what Congress is trying to think about right now. And I, you know, it's just I think Americans just have a different concept a lot in a lot of ways than Europeans do of, of, of sort of the government's involvement in health care and what it should be. And, you know, I mean, like even with the Affordable Care Act, like insurers have to have to file their rates and they have to like say if they're going to raise premiums more than 10 percent. But like the government can't really like prevent them from doing that. No, they can just sort of, you know, like a be a mean mommy and stand on the stairs and say, think about your behavior. Right. (laughs) And we have all of these, you know, consultants who are busy, you know, teaching the health industry how to extract more money. Um, 
it's, we, we have we have an entire industry built up around the healthcare industry to maximize health spending. Yes. All right. Well, that, that, this is another issue that's not going away anytime soon. Uh, we're going to wrap things up with everybody else's extra credits now. That's, of course, where each of us recommends a story they read recently they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to all these pieces on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go next? Joanne? Oh, I love this part because I sort of meander around the internet looking for things that are a little offbeat. And this week I found the Dementia Museum. Um, it's in the arts section of the New York Times by Farah Nayeri. And it's about um, a the National Museums in Liverpool, which is a bunch of museums. And they've created a um, both an online and a physical real um, memory suitcase. And um, it help, it's filled with objects, including things like soap from World War II. And there are different ones for different cultural and racial and ethnic groups. So to, to trigger people's memories as they either touch these items or do it online, um, caregivers are trained in how to use these memory-triggering items to improve communication and sort of emotional response and happiness for people suffering with dementia and, and their ability to communicate with the people taking care of them and who love them. It was a really fun article. Museum is fight the isolation and pain of dementia. A happy Alzheimer's story for, for Yeah, it doesn't cure Alzheimer's and it's being adapted by in Minnesota for a slightly different cultural uh, setting here in the U.S. Cool. Alice? I like that one because it's, it's, um, it's a non-medical intervention that can really make a difference. Right. <laughs> um, I was very taken with this piece by Shafali Luthra for Kaiser Health News uh, about it was focusing on Ohio, but it can be applied to a lot of states, clearly. It's titled Medicaid is Rural America's Financial Midwife, and it was showing one, just how much uh, rural hospitals depend on Medicaid to keep their doors open, but also how much um, Medicaid is funding the existence of maternal health services and providers in in some of these areas. And should a state like Ohio pull the trigger on some of the things it's considering in terms of having um, an enrollment freeze in Medicaid, in terms of implementing Medicaid work requirements, in terms of who knows, trying to roll back their expansion or something, um, or or if that happens on the national level, as they attempted last year, um, that this would really threaten these rural hospitals. And then uh, mothers like the, those profiled very movingly in the story would have to travel so much further, hours and hours and hours to get the kind of care they need, which means that they would probably get less of the uh, prenatal care than, than they really need. It's funny, at a time when we're talking so much about maternal health outcomes. Um, the I, I think people still, policymakers still don't quite get that Medicaid pays for half the births in the United mm-hmm. States. More so, than half yeah. in, in Ohio, as I learned in this piece. Yeah. Paige. Yeah. So uh, my story is from CNN uh, by Aaron Kessler, Elizabeth Cohen, and Catherine Grice. And it's um, an analysis that they did jointly with Harvard. And it's interesting because it just provides like more insight into, you know, why doctors are, are overprescribing opioids, um, at which, of course, we're all thinking and talking about more and more these days as, as we talk about the overdose epidemic. But <clears throat> what they did is they looked at two different databases uh, from 2014 and 2015. 
and they looked at the amount of opioids that doctors prescribed compared to the amount of money that they were paid by the industry for speaking and other kinds of fees, uh, consulting, that sort of thing, and found a really strong correlation between the amount of prescribing and what they were likely to get paid. In fact, doctors in the top 25th percentile of prescribers, of of those doctors, 72% received payments from the industry. And those in the top 5th percentile, 84% received payments. And I should note that, of course, it's not illegal for doctors to to get paid by industry, although it's it's kind of controversial because there's the thought, of course, that they're influenced. Um, but this just kind of like, I think sheds a little bit more light into 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 like this the you know sort of phenomenon we've seen over the last 15 20 years of doctors prescribing opioids and um you know w- what their motivations may or may not be so it's a really interesting piece yeah and it speaks to it speaks to the the growing industry i just mentioned of trying to maximize profit out of the healthcare industry all right well that is it for today thank you all for listening if you enjoyed the podcast you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast we'd also appreciate it if you left us a review that will help other people find us too also as usual you can email us your questions we're at what the health all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me i'm at jay rovner I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Alice Olstein. I'm at PW underscore Cunningham. And we can all be at the at the hashtag Crazy Pants. Right? That's right. <laughs> and w- meantime, we will be back in your feed next week with more Crazy Pants stuff. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>